please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Our sermon passage this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I'm actually going to begin reading in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. So I'm going to read the verse before the passage printed in your bulletin as well. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 38, the Lord Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did, they say, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. <clears throat> Well, the New Testament book of 2 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to encourage Christians to live godly lives in light of the future coming of the Lord Jesus. The message of 2 Peter is basically this. False teachers are denying the importance of living a godly life. Scoffers will come and deny that Jesus is ever coming back or that there will be a final judgment. But don't be deceived. Jesus is coming back. There will be a day of judgment. So, by faith, live a godly life while you wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. One of the arguments that Peter makes in his letter is the paragraph that Jen read for us earlier in the service. Look with me in your Bibles or just in your bulletins 
at Peter's words there in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Peter says there, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the context, it's very clear that what Peter means by the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is the future return of the Lord Jesus. Peter is saying, listen, we were not hoodwinked when we persuaded you that Jesus would come back to judge the living and the dead. What does he say? At the end of verse 16, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says this teaching that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead is rooted in something we saw. What did you see, Peter? Look there in verses 17 and 18. Peter says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying, let me tell you how I know that a glorious divine Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. I know that because I saw a glorious divine Jesus come to fulfill the scriptures on the mountain of transfiguration. Our sermon text this morning from the New Testament book of Mark uh, records for us the event that Peter is here describing, known as the transfiguration. This is the moment during Jesus' earthly ministry when the veil is pulled back and the divine glory of Jesus as the fulfiller of the scriptures is revealed to Peter, James, and John. In the passage we considered uh, last Sunday, we saw that Jesus comes to confirm the Old Testament's teaching that the Christ first suffers and then rises to glory. And most of last week's passage focused on the suffering, both of the cross that Jesus will bear and the cross to which he calls his disciples to follow. But those final words of chapter 8 concluded with a glimpse of the glory when, as Jesus said, he will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The passage from Mark this morning is a preview. It is a sneak peek of the day when the Son of Man will return in the glory of his Father to judge the living and the dead. In our time together this morning, I want us to consider three pointers to Jesus in this passage. Three things in this text that point us toward the Lord Jesus. And I'll give them to you as we walk through the text. First pointer to Jesus in this passage is the prediction. There in verse 1. Now, what should we make of Jesus' prediction there in verse 1? You might remember we touched very briefly on that in last week's sermon, and that's because it does seem to belong with the teaching that Jesus was giving at the end of Mark chapter 8. I include verse 1 again this week 
Because I think that Jesus' teaching here is related to his transfiguration. So in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, Jesus gives these words. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then in Mark and Matthew and Luke, immediately after those words, we get an account of the transfiguration. The putting of these two things together, Jesus' prediction and the transfiguration, in all three Gospels, uh, synoptic Gospels, sorry, there are four Gospels, all three synoptic Gospels, uh, seems intended to connect Jesus' words with the transfiguration. Right? You can see that there's a sense in which the glory and the power of the kingdom of God are glimpsed by some of those who were alive during Jesus' teaching at the transfiguration. I am hesitant to say that the transfiguration fulfills this prediction, though. I don't think that that is the point the gospel writers are making. Jesus' words in chapter 9, verse 1, this prediction, they seem to point beyond the transfiguration to something that the transfiguration also points to in the future. Let me tell you why I think that. Jesus says there in verse 1 that some standing here will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Is it really true to say that the transfiguration happens after the kingdom of God has come in power? We know that because Jesus is on the scene, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's on the threshold. But I'm not certain that it's true to say that the transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Because Jesus has not yet died and risen, and ascended into heaven, and sat down on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, and poured out the Spirit on his people at Pentecost. So it does seem a little bit premature to say that Jesus is transfigured after the kingdom of God has already come in power. Here's another reason I think Jesus' prediction here is actually pointing beyond the transfiguration. Why would Jesus pre- prevent, I'm sorry, predict an event six days away by saying some of the people standing here won't die until this happens, right? It would be a little odd if I said some of you will still be living by the time of our members meeting next week, right? You're like, whoa, what do you know that we don't, right? Jesus seems to be speaking about something that's more than six days away in this prediction, For these reasons, many Bible scholars believe uh, that Jesus' prediction here ultimately points beyond his transfiguration to the reign of Jesus between his first and second comings. So I could be wrong, but that's where I lean as well. Uh, That makes sense of what we've already seen about God's kingdom in Mark's gospel so far. Remember, our definition of the kingdom of God is twofold. The kingdom of God is first God's kingly rule. It's his royal power in action to save through Jesus. And second, the kingdom of God is the blessed domain that the rule of God creates for those who trust in him. Again, we saw back in chapter 1 that because King Jesus has arrived, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is knocking at the door. It is at the threshold. It is here with Jesus. 
Remember in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus told a parable in which he compared the kingdom of God to a tiny mustard seed that grows shockingly big and fills the whole world. Well, after Jesus dies and rises and ascends to heaven and sits on his throne and pours out the Holy Spirit as he enjoys the same glory that gets, trans- that gets previewed in the transfiguration, we know from the book of Acts that within a matter of years, the tiny mustard seed of God's kingdom grows to fill the whole world. In the book of Acts, the enemies of the church describe the Christians as these men who have turned the world upside down. Well, the narrator of Acts makes it so clear again and again, the Christians did not turn the world upside down. King Jesus, working through his gospel, turned the world upside down. So when Jesus says that some standing here won't taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. It's possible, and I think this is the case, that Jesus means that some of his apostles will live to see that even before Jesus comes back at his second coming, Jesus is reigning powerfully right now as king in heaven. King Jesus is rescuing sinners from the domain of darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as Paul says in Colossians. The mustard seed of God's kingdom, even 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, it has grown to fill the whole world. Brothers and sisters, that's why there's a church here now. Because right now, Jesus is ruling as king. And we're here because he has rescued us into his kingdom. That's why we can have confidence when we share the gospel. Not because we're so persuasive, but because King Jesus is still active through his spirit to transfer people from the domain of darkness into God's kingdom. Now, of course, God's kingdom has not yet been fully consummated yet. That happens at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, which is still in the future. God's kingly power is still in action through Jesus, but it hasn't yet brought us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. King Jesus has not yet returned to judge the living and the dead. I mentioned this last week. The teaching of the New Testament seems to be that the kingdom of God is inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus, and it is consummated at the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus' prediction here in chapter 9, verse 1, I think points us to the heavenly reign of Jesus between his first and second comings. When he reigns with the same glory that we see in the transfiguration, which brings us to the second pointer to Jesus in this passage and that is the transfiguration itself. So the transfiguration is obviously a spectacular event. Wouldn't you have loved to be there on the mountain? What I want us to see this morning is that the transfiguration is not just a light show. Uh, The meaning of the transfiguration is not, Jesus got really bright, so he must be important, right? 
as he does throughout the gospel, Mark has told us the meaning of the transfiguration through the Old Testament allusions that he has laced throughout this account. As we walk through this second point, look at how many Old Testament allusions they are and what they say about what the transfiguration means. Mark tells us there in verse 2 that six days after Jesus teaches about following him and taking up our cross, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a high mountain. We've seen Jesus take Peter, James, and John aside before. Uh, It's possible that Jesus leaves the other nine disciples to do crowd control. When Jesus comes back down the mountain, there's a big crowd waiting for him. It seems significant that Jesus takes three disciples, uh, given that the law of Moses says that on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact shall be established. So Jesus wants there to be three witnesses able to verify what happens on this mountain. Well, once Jesus and his disciples reach the top, Mark says there very simply at the end of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured literally means his form or appearance changed. Matthew tells us that his face starts to shine like the sun. Mark tells us the disciples look on as his clothes become radiant and intensely white. In kind of an odd comment, Mark says they were so white as no one on earth could bleach them. Kind of an odd comment. It seems to suggest that this glory of Jesus isn't from earth, it's from heaven. Because that's where Jesus is from. Well, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 104, we read that God covers himself with light as with a garment. And here the disciples see Jesus covered in a light garment. As the disciples are soaking in this breathtaking view of the Lord Jesus, uh, suddenly there appears Moses and Elijah, and they start talking with Jesus. How do Peter, James, and John know it's Moses and Elijah? I don't know, but somehow they did. Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah. What are they doing here, and how did they get here? Well, it's very interesting. Deuteronomy 34 tells us that no one ever found the body of Moses after he died. In fact, Jude 9 in the New Testament indicates that Moses' body was taken into heaven by the archangel Michael at some point after God buried him. It's also very interesting that Elijah never died. He too was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. So on this mountain, which is sort of halfway between earth and heaven, you might say, as the heavenly identity of Jesus is revealed, these two heaven dwellers, Elijah and Moses, show up. Here's what's also very interesting. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah both have personal conversations with God on a high mountain. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Moses in Exodus 24. By the way, our passage is chock full of references to Exodus 24. 
In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah talk with God on the high mountain. Now, Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus on the high mountain. What does that say about who Jesus is? Also important to know about Moses and Elijah is that Moses and Elijah were both heavily associated with Old Testament expectations about the last days. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God had promised to Israel that he was going to send them a prophet like Moses. And God said, when I send the prophet like Moses, to him you shall listen. The Jews came to associate this coming of the prophet like Moses with the last days. In Malachi chapter 4, as Sarah read for us earlier, God tells his people to remember the law of Moses And he promises that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, he's going to send Elijah to prepare his people. So the appearance of Moses and Elijah pointing to Jesus seems to indicate Jesus is the one who will fulfill all that the Old Testament teaches about the last days. Who will bring the great and awesome day of the Lord? Well, probably the shining God-man standing between Moses and Elijah. There's going to be quite a stretch of time, of course, between Jesus' first coming and the final day of judgment. But Moses and Elijah's appearance here seems to say Jesus is the center of God's last day's plans. And he's come to kick them off. So the transfiguration, it doesn't only point forward to the current heavenly reign of Jesus between his two comings, the transfiguration also points forward to the second coming when the glory that Jesus now has concealed in heaven will be seen by all. Now, Peter and James and John, they're seeing this radiantly bright Jesus. There's Moses and Elijah, these legendary Old Testament heroes, and it's just too much for Peter. And so he opens his mouth and says something that does not make very much sense. Must have been a Boy Scout. There in verse 5, he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Mark explains there in verse 6, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Mark points out it's not a time for tents. The glory of this moment is a marvelous revelation, but it's not yet here to stay. There in verse 7, the revelation comes to a climax as a cloud fills the air, a cloud that reminds us of God's presence on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. When God's cloud descends on Sinai at the Exodus, His voice thunders the Ten Commandments. Well, as God's cloud descends on this new Sinai, in this new Exodus, what does his voice thunder? It says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the climactic fulfillment of the law of Moses. We who are under the new covenant, we read the law of Moses as that which points us to the Son, Jesus. One more Old Testament allusion. 
when the father tells the disciples, this is my beloved son. That reminds us of Psalm 2, when God says to the Christ, you are my beloved son. And then he tells the Christ that he will rule to the ends of the earth and that one day he will smash his enemies with a rod of iron. So friends, can you see what Mark is doing with this web of Old Testament allusions? The transfiguration is not just a fireworks show. It is a basket of Old Testament signposts pointing to Jesus as the glorious divine Son who has come to fulfill all the Scriptures. Jesus shines with light like God does. Jesus is the God that Moses and Elijah speak with on the mountain. Jesus is the prophet like Moses to whom we must listen, whose face shines on the new Sinai at the new Exodus. Jesus comes after Elijah as the one who will bring the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus is the one to whom God says, you're my beloved son, the Psalm 2 king who will rule to the ends of the earth, who will one day come back and smash his enemies with a rod of iron. 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when doubts begin to creep into the church about Jesus' return. Is he coming back? Why hasn't he come yet? Can you see why Peter returns to the transfiguration as he writes the letter of 2 Peter? Right? Peter says, don't listen to the scoffers. I know that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead because I saw his glory on the mountain. James was there. He saw it. John was there. He saw it. And all three of us are ready to die for our faith that King Jesus is coming back for us. Friends, listen, here's why this passage is relevant for you today. The claim of Peter, the claim of James and of John, the claim of Mark, the claim of the Bible is that one day you will see this Jesus. The transfiguration is held out to you as a preview of the day when the Son of Man comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels to repay every person according to what He has done. Admiral William McRaven is a retired naval officer and former head of the Navy SEALs, who has also become a popular author. And Admiral McRaven uh, writes that one of the principles that guided him throughout his military career was the question, can you stand before the long green table? He writes this, he says, since World War II, the conference tables used in military boardrooms had been constructed of long, narrow pieces of furniture covered in green felt. I'm sure many of you know that better than me. When a formal proceeding took place that required multiple officers to adjudicate an issue, the officers would gather around the table. He says, every time I was about to make an important decision, I asked myself, 
Can I stand before the long green table? In other words, will these actions prove justified when they are evaluated? Admiral McRaven was guided by the principle that his actions would be evaluated. Friends, our actions will be evaluated by this glorious Jesus when he returns to judge the world. And God intends for the preview of his great coming to motivate us to do what the Father says and listen to Jesus. Listen to him, says the Father. Listen, when Jesus talks, it's like when your professor tells you, hey, this is what's on the final. It's like when your spouse tells you, hey, this is what I want for Christmas. In those moments, you are being let in on what really matters and what you will be held accountable for in the future. Friends, that's what Jesus is doing when he speaks to us. He's telling us what really matters, and He's telling us what we will be held accountable for. God the Father is helping us out when He points to a radiant Jesus and says, Listen to Him. This is my beloved Son, the judge of all the earth. Listen. He's coming back. Friends, listen. When this glorious Jesus returns to judge the world, when his supreme glory and worthiness are revealed, we will see on that day that what really mattered about our lives is whether we listened to Jesus. On the day when we stand before Jesus, none of us is going to look back and think, man, I could have made more money than I did. None of us is going to look back and think, wow, look at all those people who had more fun than me. None of us is going to look back on that day and say, wow, you know, I never did manage to get so-and-so's approval. On the day that Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, our great concern will be, did I listen to him? Did I build my life around the words of this Son of God? The second pointer to Jesus in our passage is the transfiguration, this Old Testament-rich preview of the day when Jesus returns to judge the world. Third and final pointer to Jesus we need to consider this morning is the Scriptures. We've seen the prediction the transfiguration. Third and finally, there in verses 9 to 13 is the scriptures. There in verse 9, as the disciples are coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them not to speak about what they've just seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why would Jesus do that? Well, the reason seems apparent from verse 10. Mark says there in verse 10, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Jesus' gag order seems to be related to the fact that the disciples don't yet understand. They don't understand Jesus' teachings that the Christ must first suffer, then rise to glory. 
right? You can see how they would really muddy the waters if they started to preach what they'd witnessed without understanding that. They might be tempted to preach that the Christ was headed straight for his heavenly enthronement. They might misunderstand the timing of Jesus' kingdom. So the disciples' confusion about Jesus' statement that he he needs to first die and then rise, uh, it seems to lead to their question about Elijah. We've already mentioned the Old Testament from Malachi promises to send, uh, in, in Malachi, God promises to send the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And God had said that Elijah would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Uh, that could mean that Elijah comes to sort of reconcile family units. Uh, it seems more likely that Elijah means that God comes to return God's people, as one scholar put it, to the covenant loyalty of their ancient forefathers. So when the disciples ask there in verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The meaning of their question seems to be, Jesus, how can you say that you need to die and then rise if Elijah comes first and fixes everything? If Elijah comes first and restores everything, who's going to kill you? But why would you need to die and rise if Elijah comes first and fixes everything? Well, Jesus' answer is multifaceted. First, Jesus says, yes, the scribes are right in their assertion that Elijah comes before the day of the Lord. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then Jesus reminds the disciples, that's not the only thing that the scriptures say. Jesus asks them a question in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Here's what Jesus seems to be getting at. He seems to be saying, How can you interpret what the Old Testament says about Elijah in a way that's inconsistent with what the Old Testament says about the Christ. When Jesus says there, it's written that the Son of Man must be treated with contempt. That word that gets translated, treated with contempt, uh, it's a word that comes from some of the Greek translations of Isaiah 53, which we thought about last week, predicting the sufferings of the Christ for the sins of his people. Jesus is pointing out, look, you're, you're stuck on this Elijah prediction, but the pattern revealed in Scripture is clearly that the Christ must first suffer, then be glorified. And Jesus has even more proof of that pattern. He returns to Elijah there in verse 13. He says there, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In Matthew's gospel, we read these words, then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Jesus seems to be saying this Old Testament expectation that Elijah would come and set in motion God's prophetic plans to restore all things. Jesus seems to be saying That was fulfilled by Elijah, I'm sorry, by John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, just like Elijah was. Jesus seems to be saying the real Elijah action 
was not those 10 minutes you saw him on the mountain. It was John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? Jesus says, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. It is written of Elijah in the scriptures that a cowardly king and his wicked wife tried to murder him. Well, it was written of John the Baptist back in Mark chapter 6 that a cowardly king and his wicked wife did murder John. John fits the pattern, first suffering, then glory. And Jesus says that's the pattern for the Christ too. That's what's written of the Son of Man. Notwithstanding the preview of the Son of Man's glory you've just had on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Friends, let me close with this. You know, don't you, that that's what was written of the Son of Man for you, for your sake. It was written of the Son of Man that he should suffer so that when he comes to judge the world, your sins might be forgiven. On the day when Jesus comes to bring the great and awesome day of the Lord to give to every person according to what he has done, there will be an innumerable multitude clothed in white robes because Jesus has washed their sins away by his blood. Saints, that's why the transfiguration could only be a preview The reason that the glorious Lord Jesus came down off the mountain and walked to Jerusalem and was tried in a kangaroo court and was nailed to a cross to suffer and die and was buried was so that he might pay for the sins of everyone who would trust in him so that on the day of judgment, we might not be condemned but forgiven. Jesus suffered so that when we stand, not before a long green table, but before the radiant Son of God, we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we would love nothing more than to speak to you about how that forgiveness can be yours, about how you might come not to fear the day of judgment in the knowledge that the Son of Man has suffered to pay for your sins. You can get on good terms with the judge now through the gospel. Friends, we'd love to talk to you about that. Brothers and sisters, those of us who do know that forgiveness, I want us to give the very last word to the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter, after he mentions his experience of Jesus' glory on the mountain, Peter says this, He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, Peter says the transfiguration, it shores up our confidence that everything written about the Christ in this book will happen. So what should we do until Jesus comes back? Peter says we should pay attention to that prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises 
in our hearts. Saints, until Jesus comes back, we live in a dark place. But in the words of our God that point us to the radiant Son of God, we have a bright lamp, a lamp that shows us what's true, a lamp that gives us hope, a lamp that teaches us how to walk. And this lamp assures us that in spite of all the darkness, one day soon the day will dawn and Jesus will return to save us. Let's pray he would keep us faithful until he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this revelation of the divine glory of the returning Son of God, Jesus. Thank you for the Apostle Peter's clear witness to the reliability of your word confirmed by what we've seen in the transfiguration. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live mindful of the day, hopeful for the day, when the Lord Jesus returns, knowing that that day is the day of our salvation, of our vindication, when we will fully and finally experience your love and forgiveness as we never have before. Thank you for the foretaste that we have in this life. God, would you meet with us now as we come to the Lord's table to do us good. Grant us to pay attention to your word as as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, amen.